Well, good evening. We'll try that again. Good evening. It is very good to be here with you. I just spent the last three days at a pastor's conference, so if my voice is a little tired, it's because I was fellowshipping and talking with a lot of people, so you know, my, my voice isn't usually raspy, you know, that, that's a joke. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more raspier than usual, let's put it that way. You can open up with me in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 4. Second Chronicles 19.4. And we have been looking at the life of King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And uh, as we have done that, we have been learning a lot about this man's shortcomings, this man's failures, this man's weaknesses. And one of the things that I am always aware of is my own weaknesses. Are you aware of yours? And once you are, you know, you can really benefit from the opportunity to hand those weaknesses over to Christ and allow him to make you strong in those areas. But if you don't, they will continue to haunt you and you'll continue to make those same mistakes over and over again. And we certainly don't want that. In the case of Jehoshaphat, unfortunately, he had a history of doing that exact thing. But before we get started this evening, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask in the name of Jesus that you would truly just speak to our hearts. Give us the ability to hear your voice, to know your will for our lives, to live for you, and to give you all the glory with all that you have provided for us, your many blessings, your gifts, your provision. May we live our lives for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 19 and in verse 4, we pick up where we left off last week with Jehoshaphat's uh, reign as the king of Judah. And and the first thing we're going to see is that he was a very good king. But as we remember last week, he had some problems. One of the things he couldn't seem to get a handle on in his life is that he was very nice to wicked people. In particular, King Ahab from the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, God had to raise up a a prophet to rebuke him. And we saw it at the end of our study last week. We read in chapter 19, verse 1, that when Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu, the seer, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him and said to the king, Should you help the wicked? And love those who hate the Lord. Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Ashrapoles and have set your heart on seeking God. So he needed to be rebuked because he made alliances with wicked kings such as Ahab. And we saw last week that bad company corrupts good morals. And you become like the people you spend time with. And so there is such a thing as being too nice or spending too much time with sinners, or getting involved in the things that they get involved in, when in fact we need to come out from among them and be separate. So, with that as our introduction, or carryover from last week, let's look at verses 4, and actually I want to read verses 4 through 11. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land, in each of the fortified cities of Judah. And he told them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you wherever you give a verdict. Now, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests and heads of Israelite families, to administer the law of the Lord and to settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem, and he gave them these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. In every case that comes before you from your fellow countrymen who live in the cities, whether bloodshed or other concerns of the law, commands, decrees, or ordinances, you are to warn them not to sin against the Lord. Otherwise, his wrath will come on you and your brothers. Do this 
and you will not sin. Amariah the chief priest will be over you in any manner concerning, excuse me, any matter concerning the Lord, and Zebediah, son of Ishmael, the leader of the tribe of Judah, will be over you in any matter concerning the king. And the Levites will serve as officials before you. Act with courage, and may the Lord be with those who do well. So the first thing we're struck by is that Jehoshaphat personally strengthened the spiritual state of Judah. He was concerned for the spiritual state of their nation, of, the, of his kingdom. And, you know, not every leader is concerned about the spiritual state of their people. This king was. Oh, that God would give us leaders that are not just concerned with, first let's start with those that are concerned for our well-being, but in addition to that, are concerned for our spiritual well-being. You know, so many times we talk about the things that are important, like fi- finances and inflation, the cost of living, these types of things. But, you know, what's more important is the spiritual state. The spiritual state of our nation is, is in a, a terrible way right now. And we think of the families of those who even recently, even just, just yesterday, was it? Or the day before, just, just, just lost their, their young children in one, one of these school shootings in Texas. And then there was Buffalo, which was a, a supermarket just, what, a week or two ago? The spiritual state of the people of our nation needs to be our concern as Christians. And you say, well, you know, it doesn't really impact me. I'm good with God. Well, it does if you're in a supermarket and somebody comes in there who's in a bad way or your children at a school and somebody comes into that school that's in a bad way. The spiritual state of a nation is the most important concern that we have as pastors, as Christians, as leaders, and should be as leaders of our nation. But sadly, it's not. And as a result, we are, as they say, sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind. And it's sad. And our hearts go out to those people who are suffering because of the actions of a few. Well, this man, Jehoshaphat, had apparently declined spiritually prior to his alliance that he made with Ahab, who was killed in battle. But the fact that he made that alliance shows us that perhaps he wasn't where he was supposed to be spiritually. But Jehu the seer came, we just read that, and he rebuked this man. And you know, I just want to say this. It brought the fruit of repentance in his life. You know, I respect the person who makes a mistake, is rebuked for it, and repents. Because guess what? I'm that person. You're that person. You can't get it right all the time. We make mistakes. We, we choose to do the wrong thing. We sin. And, and when God rebukes us through his word or through another individual, and our response is to repent, then we're better off. Then we're better off than the person who rejects that counsel and walks away from the Lord, by far. This man, though he had made a real big mistake, had been rebuked and received that rebuke and began to now strengthen the nation spiritually. He strengthened the integrity of the judicial system in Judah. Oh, do we need that in our nation? He taught the judges about personal accountability to the Lord. It's interesting, we don't seem to do that. We allow our judges and justices to have sort of a judicial philosophy, but I don't really think we charge them with this understanding that if they judge wrong, they're accountable to God who judges all men and women. He did that. And he established both civil and religious appellate accountability over the judges, which is good because judges need to be held accountable as well. And he truly lived up to his name. His name, Jehoshaphat, means he whom Jehovah judges. And so he made his addition or his encouragement to the nation to be a wonderful integral judicial system because he knew if the justices and the judges of the nation judged righteously before God, the people would receive justice and be given an opportunity to serve God in righteousness. That was so important. And we've seen what's happened in our nation as a result or a consequence of judges not judging righteously. Well, his leadership brought the Lord's deliverance later on, uh, from the Moabites and the Ammonites. And I actually want to read through this. This is a really interesting account. 
and uh, it reads like a, like a narrative, like a, a, like a book you might be reading, a novel, or, or even like a movie you might watch. And so I want to read it. I'm going to read it in sections and then make a few comments, but try to keep it flowing. Uh, we're going to see here in verse 1 of chapter 20, and we'll read all the way through verse 17, that after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they were traditional enemies of Israel, with some of the Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Now, he wasn't looking for a fight, but they came against him. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea, and that would be the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazaz and Tamar, that is in Gedi, that was to the south. And alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord Jehovah. I want you to note his response. When this man was faced with danger and an imminent attack, he turned to the Lord. You can say a lot of bad things about this man. He made many mistakes, but one of the things he always seemed to understand is when you need to know something, inquire of the Lord. Amen? So that's what he did. He inquired of the Lord. And we pick it up here. It says, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord, and indeed they came from every town in Judah to seek him. So as goes the leader, so go the people. And then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, and now we're going to really review his prayer. It was a beautiful prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived it in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. He believed that. So he claimed that promise, that God could be trusted to protect them. Verse 10, But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Could you imagine if one of our leaders had the humility and the faith to pray like that publicly? We don't know what to do, but God, you know what to do. Show us what to do. Save us. Hear our prayers. That would be inspirational. Well, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. And he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle belongs to the Lord. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeroal. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. You know, it's the moment when we think we're strong that we fall. It's the moment when, as a nation, we collectively come together and decide we can do something that we're at our weakest. We're at our strongest when we recognize and realize that we need God. And I believe our nation has become weakened by leaders who refuse to turn to God in our time of need. You know, there was a, a, quite a lack, to be, to be frank, and I'm not getting political, but there was a lack uh, on the part of our leaders over the last several years, for the most part, to turn to God in their time of need. When the, when the pandemic came around, there were some, some of our leaders, the president at the time did, but 
it seemed that a lot of the ones who were making the decisions and leading us through that crisis were sort of winging it. They kept saying, we follow the science. The Bible talks about science falsely so-called. The science. We, we follow the science. I wanted to put C-O-N in front of that and say we follow the conscience. I want to say, no, we don't follow anything. We don't follow anyone but the Lord. But you didn't hear much of that, did you? And I think we suffered for it as a result. It said, oh, but I pray for our nation. I pray for our culture that we would turn back to God. Things may have to get a little worse before that happens for some people. But certainly for us in the church, we cry out to God. Listen, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. We, We didn't know what we were doing during the pandemic. No one did. But well, we did know one thing, we had to turn to God. And we prayed, our leaders prayed. We, we, we got on a Zoom call shortly after things shut down and said, what are we going to do? And no one knew what to do. And I was the first one to say, I have no idea. So we prayed and we looked for God's wisdom. And you know what's interesting? God spoke through someone in this gathering. Someone stood up, we were introduced to him. Jehaziel. He stood up and the Lord spoke through him. And you know what happened with us is God began to speak, not just through me, but other leaders. And people were inspired to share some ideas. Let's do this. What about that? How about this? And step by step, as we sang this evening in worship, he led us. When we took the first step, we didn't know what the second step would be. When we took the second step, we didn't know what the third step would be. At our fifth step, we didn't know what the tenth step would be. We just step by step followed God, and God led us through an incredibly difficult time in our culture and in our nation's history. And I have to say, I'm very happy to say, that for the most part, in our fellowship, everyone got through it pretty okay. Many got sick, some did not. We didn't have a super spreader event here that I'm aware of. We all stayed healthy for the most part. And when we got sick, we got better. There were a few people who were elderly and infirmed and have passed on. We we are aware aware of that. And that that happens. And we understand that. And that's in God's hands. But it wasn't for being reckless. So is it wrong to suggest that we should be led of the Spirit in difficult times, not just good times? It's especially in those difficult times that you have to inquire of the Lord. Inquire of the Lord means I don't know what to do. And I'm not going to pretend I do. But I know one who knows everything, the end from the beginning, and I'm going to go to him. And not only am I going to go to him, I'm going to ask you guys to go there with me. We're going to pray, and we're going to look for God's leading. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. And God spoke. So this man was a good leader. Why? Because he brought the Lord's deliverance of Judah, as we'll see, from these nations, but he did it through prayer. He sought the Lord in prayer when he was attacked by his enemies. He led by example. And the people were able to follow that example. He cried out to the Lord for his people in prayer. Did it publicly in front of everyone in humility. And what did the Lord do? He answered them with a message of hope and deliverance. Let's continue. Verses 18 through 23. He didn't just pray. It isn't just praying that gets us through those difficult times. It's praising and worshiping as well. Let's pick it up in verse 18. In verse 18, we read that Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Yeah, it's okay to praise the Lord loudly. And early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa, and as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes. Against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, that would be the Edomites, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. And the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. And after they finished slaughtering the men of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. You know, it's pretty amazing what I've seen over the last year is a lot of the enemies of values and morality 
and faith have started destroying each other. And I'm okay with that. It's ordained by God. We used to have a governor in New York. His name was Cuomo. He's not there anymore, is he? And I'm not saying the new governor is any better. I'm just saying that they were praising this man as the Messiah, and he was removed from office. Not from the opposite party. By his own party. And I've seen some things. And now we see some of these leaders in our nation that are failing, being attacked by members of their own party who used to support them. Why is that? I believe, and I'm I'm not trying to play prophet here, but I believe that the Lord is setting up ambushes against our enemies as we pray for deliverance. We will not have to fight this battle if we inquire of the Lord. See, we think we need to get out there and make this happen. But you know, the less we do, I mean, but after all, the government is completely controlled now by the left. The less we do, the more they seem to destroy themselves. Who's doing is that? I believe the Lord will set up ambushes when we get out of the way, cry out to God and say, Lord, do your best. Do your best work, your perfect work in our world. Deliver us from evil. We have to, we have to look to God. That takes humility. And what did the king say? You Have faith. And then after they prayed, did they walk around saying, oh, I really hope God answers my prayers? Ooh, what do you think? Do you think God's going to answer our prayers? How do you think the midterms are going to go? No, they praised. They realized, you've prayed. You don't need to pray anymore. You've prayed. But praise is prayer. Praise is a faith-based prayer when you actually thank God in advance for what he's about to do. And that takes faith. Have you ever noticed that it is impossible to doubt and praise at the same time? It's like you can't breathe in and out at the same time, right? You can only be doing one or the other. And if you're praising God, you generally don't complain. You generally don't doubt. And your faith doesn't fail. But the minute you stop praising God and worshiping God, worship means surrender to God, the minute you stop that, you're probably going to lapse back into a lethargic state spiritually. So what does this mean? Pray until you've prayed. Praise until God answers. See, I think you can pray all night, but you can pray and then praise all night too. You can, you can lift up your voice to praise God for his good work even before, maybe I even say especially before he does his work. I love this as an example. I mean, this is one of the best accounts of a battle fought <laughs> correctly for the battle belongs to the Lord. You don't have to fight this battle, God said. And they understood that and they trusted God. And so they march out by faith. There's probably one or two who said, well, you know, I don't know, I don't know. You know what? Forget about it. Let's just praise. And all those thoughts seem to go away when we praise God. And it's why we give such an amount of time in our services to praise and worship. Because if you don't set your heart right in praise and worship, you're going to, you know what you're going to do? You're going to sit there thinking, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I, I, I doubt that. Not if you're praising. So I love that. He worshiped and praised the Lord for his promise. That's all it was. It was a promise. We have a promise. He's coming again. Amen. Have you praised God recently for that promise? Oh, Lord. Or it usually sounds like this. Oh, Lord, please come back. Please come. Please. I don't know when you're going to come back, but please come back. That's not praise. That's desperation, but that's not praise. You know what praise is? Lord, I know you're coming back and not a minute before you should. Lord, when you come back, I know you'll set everything right. Until then, you're in control. You're sovereign. I trust you. Do your best work. Do your best work in the lives and the hearts of people as I praise you for your work in advance. Well, they submitted themselves to the Lord in worship. You can't do anything less than that. Worship means submission. It means surrender. So if you're going to worship, you have to surrender. So they submitted themselves, and they praised the Lord for his goodness and his faithfulness. I I have nothing to praise the Lord about. There's nothing good in my life right now. I got nothing to praise. Really? Because that's not why you should be praising the Lord anyway. You praise him for his goodness, his faithfulness. And then when you do that, you realize, ah, my life is pretty good. My life is actually very good. Because God is in my life. I'm in the center of his will for my life. I'm serving him. How much better can it get? So he encouraged them to have faith in the Lord and in his word. And the army was led by praise. And the victory was won through praise. So pray and praise. 
and they received the blessings of the Lord through faith. Look at verse 24. I like this. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert, and they looked toward the vast army, they saw only uh, dead bodies lying on the ground. What? What happened? God happened. The Lord happened. Where were they? They didn't see it. They didn't even know it was happening. They trusted it was happening. They were too busy praising to worry about what happened. And that is clearly the most important thing we can do in times of desperation. To praise God. To praise God. So, when the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There, there was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Barakah, by the way, the word in Hebrew means blessing or praise. And the valley of Barakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why they called it the valley of Barakah to this day. How do you think it got its name? So we then continue to read there. Well, actually, let's just stop there for a minute. Because a few things I want to mention there. They're praising in the valley of praise. And it it became a valley of praise because they came into the valley praising. You may be going into a valley right now. We like to talk about mountaintop experiences with God and valleys. You might be going into a valley. Are you praising? If you praise into the valley, right, you're going to praise in the valley, and the valley will become a valley of praise. But if you complain your way into the valley, I can promise you that you're not going to call it the valley of Barakah. You might call it the bum valley, the bummed out valley, the bummer. But you're not going to call it the valley of praise because you have to enter the valley praising to experience that kind of thing. And that is exactly what they did. They received the blessings of the Lord, but they received them by faith. The Lord abundantly blessed them with massive amounts of plunder, (laughs) massive amounts of plunder. And they praised the Lord. So you've got this word barakah, which can mean praise. It can mean blessing. You can praise the Lord for the blessing. But barakah, think about that. Make sure that that is your heart. Make sure that you're living that way. That when you go through difficult times, your first go-to is to praise. Well, they rejoiced as well. Look at this verse 27. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully. Notice that. Joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. And they entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. So, what's happening here? They're rejoicing in the Lord's deliverance and in his peace. He's brought peace. He's brought blessing. And they've praised. But this brought joy. Oh, pastor, I just don't have any joy in my life. I have nothing to praise God for, and I just I've got no joy in my heart. Let's turn it around. Have you praised God? Because when you praise God, you have plenty to rejoice in. It's through that experience in the valley of praise that you receive joy and blessing and abundance and God's goodness and his provision. But if you just sit there with your hands up in the air talking about how awful things are and complaining and doubting God and not praising him, what exactly do you think is going to happen? Joy? I don't think so. Well, that's what they experience, and it becomes a wonderful example for us. Look at 29 and 30. The fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace For his God had given him rest on every side. Rest in the Hebrew mind was bliss. It was the greatest blessing one could receive. So they go from faith to praise to blessing to joy to rest. And rest, again, in the Hebrew mind is what we do when we enter into our eternal rest. Enter into the joy of the Lord. 
That's that rest that's in God. So you can see it's a beautiful picture of how we should experience things in this life. Should be this way. Often isn't because we don't praise God. We don't surrender our hearts to him. But the Lord brought them peace with the surrounding nations. And then, looking at verse 31, we get to the end of his life. And we're going to mention a few things here. And then we're going to go look at a few uh, side accounts from Kings, which are worth looking into in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, just, just to help us understand this man a little bit more. We learn here in verses 31 through 33, he reigned as king, says... So Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. His mother's name was Azubah, daughter of Shele. He walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, which, by the way, were built by the people, not by the king. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people still had not set their hearts on the God of their fathers. So there were a lot of people whose hearts didn't belong to God, but the king's heart belonged to God, and many followed his example. 35 years old, reigned for 25 years. By the way, his father Asa had ruled for 41 years, but he became severely ill toward the end of his reign. We learn that in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. So this man, Jehoshaphat, had actually ascended to the throne as co-regent for about three years prior to his father's death. He had been king for a while. He responded to the godly influence of his father Asa. Even though Asa became proud in his old age, he had a good example early on, and he followed that example. Though he was unable to completely eliminate the idolatrous altars from the land, the people of Judah still had not set their hearts on the God of their fathers. So there was still some degree of idolatry, but the nation as a whole was going in the right direction, and they were blessed for having a good Leader, There's never going to be a time, let's be honest, there's never going to be a time in our nation where everyone is serving God. I mean, part of what defines us as a nation is the freedom to serve God and the freedom to not serve God if you don't want to. And we have to accept the fact that there have been times in our nation where most people served God, but there's never been a time where everyone did. But when most people do, and more importantly, the leader does, As the leader goes, so goes the nation. And so that's what we're praying for. And we also know in in verse 34, it says this, that the other events of Jehoshaphat's reign from beginning to end are written in the annals of Jehu, son of Hadonai, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Now, I just want to point out here, because there were other books being written at this time, and the scriptures have some excerpts from those books. But those books, not all of them have been preserved. Uh, We learn here that much of what Jehoshaphat did was preserved, was recorded for us. Of course, the book of 1 Kings records Jehoshaphat's reign as king of Judah. Part of it's in 2 Kings as well. Uh, The book of the annals of of the kings of Judah is is the source for 1 and 2 Chronicles. So we have that. And there are two other historical works from this time period mentioned in Scripture. One is the annals of Jehu, son of Hanani. That was not preserved. We may have some excerpts from it, but we don't have the book. And then there's the book of the kings of Judah and Israel, or the, of Israel, which is second, uh, first and second kings, which we do have. So we actually have quite a bit of history uh, about the kings of, of Judah and Israel. In Second Chronicles, we're looking primarily at the kings of Judah, almost entirely, actually. But as we learn more and more, we learn there was also some other things happening in the nation. And in 1 Kings chapter 22, in verse 47, we're told that the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, exerted control over the land of Edom. I mentioned it before, called Mount Seir, the Meunites. Uh, these were those to the south, around Engedi. Uh, they, were, they were a nation that were traditional enemies. They're actually descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob. But they were now being ruled by Jehoshaphat through an assigned deputy. So there was a king over Edom who was a deputy to Jehoshaphat. So he had control over the entire area. And we just saw that he defeated, or God defeated, his enemies, Moab and Ammon. And so he really is in a very powerful situation. God has defeated their enemies and given them peace on all sides and blessing and abundantly provided for them. Is that what you want? If you want that, say amen. Of course you want that. But it comes through faith, as we've seen. So now we're going to look at verses 35 through 37 because 
This is the second of three times that Jehoshaphat got involved in a relationship with the ungodly. He did it three times. The third time is recorded in, in, in 2 Kings. Uh, first and second. Actually, I think it's in 2 Kings. And, you know, it's sad because if you have a weakness, which I sort of mentioned before in introduction, like if you have a weakness and you're aware of it, you can do something about it. For example, let's say that you really aren't good like buying a car. You find that people take advantage of you and they talk you into paying more than you should. If you know that, do you go to the car dealership alone? Or do you bring that uncle in sales who's really good at getting a bargain? You know, if you know your weakness, you can make accommodation. You can make adjustments. But if you say, oh, no, 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 I'm really good at this, and you're not, well, then you're going to suffer for it. So knowing your weakness is very important. So this man should have known better. Han and I, or Jay, the son of Han and I, had already told him. Should you be nice to the wicked? You know, should, should you be, let's read it again. It, it said it here, it said, should you help? He was a nice guy, but should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? That was the rebuke. And of course, it's a rhetorical question. No, you shouldn't. So let's read. In verse 35, and we'll read verses 35 to 37. Later, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, made an alliance with Ahaziah, king of Israel. Sound familiar? Who was guilty of wickedness. He agreed with him to construct a fleet of trading ships. After these were built at Ezion Geber, Eliezer, son of Dadavahu of Marashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have made an alliance with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. The ships were wrecked and were not able to set sail to trade. God was gracious. He started building a Tower of Babel, if you will. He started building some business venture. And that would have been okay. But look who he went into business with. Another wicked, idolatrous king from the northern kingdom of Israel. You would have thought after Ahab, after he almost lost his life, and Ahab was killed, that he would have learned his lesson. But you see, the problem is your weaknesses don't tend to just go away. So if your weakness is that you're not very strong around people who are ungodly, maybe you shouldn't spend time around the ungodly. What do you think? And if you know that, then you get somebody who you love who is strong to say, hold me accountable, don't let me go into business again with somebody like that. And so then you get an idea like this guy, we're going to build some trading ships. And on the surface, it sounds like a great idea. But then that person you're accountable to can say, hey, whoa, 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 didn't you tell me? You didn't want to go into business again with any ungodly people? Oh, yeah, that's right. But apparently he was not in a good place and he was not held accountable because what he was trying to do and unsuccessfully tried to do was attempt to restore an attempt to restore Solomon's maritime gold trade. Solomon had these fleet of ships and he was sailing around the world and he was involved in the gold trade, precious metals, and he did very, very well. But he unwisely chose to financially align himself with this wicked king Ahaziah, being rebuked for allying with Ahaziah by Eleazar the prophet, yet another prophet, and God was faithful to raise up prophets to warn him. The Lord allowed the ships to be wrecked, and they never set sail to trade. And you might be thinking, what a horrible tragedy. No, what a blessing. If you're getting involved in a relationship with the wrong person, romantic, business, anything where you're unequally yoked with an unbeliever, I pray God's grace and mercy in your life that whatever that is you're involved in is immediately destroyed. Because the best thing that can happen. If the business is destroyed, good for you. You're saving yourself a world of hurt. If the relationship ends, praise the Lord. Because eventually, if it didn't end, it wasn't going to end well, but it, it, it's, it's not, not going to end up well for you. So I pray that God is as faithful to us as he was to Jehoshaphat to destroy any endeavor on our part that is in defiance of God's word and his will and the way he's called us to go. Amen? Better the, the ships are destroyed. Seriously. Better they're destroyed. And that's what happened. Well, Jehoshaphat, though, and I want to point this out because in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 49, we are told this that Jehoshaphat refused to partner with Ahaziah or to let their men sail together. 
So he was willing to construct the ships and go into business with them on the construction side, but he wasn't willing to allow his men to sail with them. Now, what that tells me is he, he did a little bit better in the sense that he realized, oh, well, you know, we can go into the construction of ships together, but we can't sail together. Because he learned what happened the last time he went out to war with Ahab. And it does say that. In fact, it says it like this um, in verse uh, 47 of chapter 22 in 1 Kings. It says, um, oh, no, actually, wrong verse. Uh, let's see. Where am I? 12, 49, excuse me, 49. Yep, 49. It says, at that time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, let my men sail with your men. But Jehoshaphat refused. That's growth. That's maturity. Okay, he shouldn't have gotten involved in building the ships, but you know what? He knew better than to try to sail with this man. And that's a good thing. So God corrected him, and he received that correction yet again. So he's a good man who has a weakness. Sound familiar? Look in the mirror. Good men and women who have weaknesses that oftentimes fail. Accountability will protect you from your own weaknesses. The accountability of God's word and God's people and God's spirit will keep you safe. Well, that's pretty interesting, but uh, there's, there's more to talk about here. I want to read a little bit from 2 Kings, because there is a third time he gets himself into trouble with another king from Israel. These two are recorded in 2 Chronicles, but there's a third. It's, it's in 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, verse, verses 6 through 10. Just a few verses, but it gives us a, an understanding of what was happening here. I'll read it for you. You can listen if you like and make a note of it or turn there if you, if you like as well. Uh, verse 6 says this, uh, chapter 3 in 2 Kings. Uh, we'll pick it up right there. It says... So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria, that's the king of Israel, and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? This is like deja vu, right? From last week. I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. I've already mentioned that they conquered Edom and they set up a deputy. And so he came along as well. That's the king of Edom there. And after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? Now, it's God's fault. It's God's fault. This was Joram's decision to do this, but Jehoshaphat got involved for the third time when he really should not have. And it was so similar to the first time that it makes you think he had a problem remembering things. No, he remembered things, but don't we have selective memory? Oh, it wasn't that bad. That relationship I had with that person in the world. Well, you know, it was fun. I had something to do on Friday nights. I got to go to concerts and to the movies. I mean, it wasn't all bad. Yeah, you forgot all the other stuff, you know, all the sin. You forgot all the, the weeping, the crying, how your spiritual life was nearly destroyed. All you're thinking about is the fun. We have a tendency to do that. We whitewash our memory and we eliminate all the pain so that we can go back to the sick things we think we, we really need and want to do. I mean, it's human nature. So that's probably what happened here. Oh, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I did get out alive, yet barely. Well, what we've learned here is that Jehoshaphat joined Joram, king of Israel, and the king of Edom in an attack against the rebellious Moabites. So apparently they raised up again. They, they, they rose up again. And they came against them. And Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, foolishly followed Joram, king of Israel, into battle. Now, Jehoshaphat was bound. This is something, and, and it kind of explains what happened. He was bound to Joram by a treaty that was sealed through intermarriage. They, they married, the, the families married each other. What had happened was Joram's sister, Athaliah, had married Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. So they had an alliance, and technically, technically, he was under oath and required to march into battle with him. So... 
you can understand why he did what he did when he said, oh, my people is your people, my horses is your horses. It's kind of like if Lithuania was attacked by Russia. We have this Article 5 treaty with NATO that we have to get involved. We agreed to that. We could pull out of that, but if we've agreed to it, we have to honor our commitment. Well, the problem here is he had made a commitment. It wasn't a good decision, but it was made between the families, and it was a bad decision. But now, it's payback, because now he's bound to this. And it's interesting, because Jehoshaphat, as we know, was rebuked by Jehu the seer for making this alliance. We already read that tonight. This is, as I've said, the third time that Jehoshaphat found himself allied with Israel. First, there was the disastrous attempt to take Ramoth Gilead with Ahab in 2 Chronicles 18, which we studied last week. Then we have the disastrous ship, shipping venture with Ahaziah that we just studied here in 2 Chronicles 20. And now we have this. Joram, king of Israel, nearly got them all killed because he was a terrible leader. A terrible leader. See, Jehoshaphat, as I've said already, he controlled the land of Edom, and Edom's close to Moab, so what Joram wanted is you get your people and the people that serve you in Edom, and you march out with me, and we'll take them. We'll get these Moabites. I need your help. Sounded like a good idea. One little problem. This guy had no idea what he was doing. And if there's one thing that's really hard to stomach is following a leader who doesn't have any idea what he's doing. And all of you by now should understand what that is like. Well, Jehoshaphat followed Jehoram's lead into battle with this deputy or king of Edom at his side, and he was leading a surprise attack from the south, but it was too difficult for everyone to follow. It sounded good on paper, but when they actually tried to attack, they had to go through these areas of the desert where they didn't have any water. No one thought of that. So now here they are out in the desert for seven days, not working out too well. I want you to listen to the description of his poor leadership. He wasted time. He wasted time. He squandered precious resources. He didn't calculate or consider the needs of those following him. He was aware that there was an opportunity, but he was unaware of the obvious problems until it was too late. He blamed the Lord for his own weakness and his failure. Now we're talking about Joram, not Jehoshaphat. So that's what a bad leader looks like. If you, if you really want to know the definition of a bad leader, they waste time, they squander the people's resources, they don't consider the needs of those that are following them, they're unaware of the obvious problems until it's too late, and they blame the Lord and others for their own weakness and failures. I don't think I need to say much. But you know what's interesting? Because what happened next is quite interesting. Look at, well, if you're following along with me, if you're just listening, that's fine. Then in Second in Kings chapter 3, which again is not the book we're studying, but it's worth looking at this parallel account because it, it gives us some more insight as to Jehoshaphat's uh, spiritual life and his relationship with God. In verse 11 of that same chapter where we left off, it said, but Jehoshaphat. And I'm so glad. Not a perfect man. Had weakness, but... When push came to shove, this man knew what to do. It says, but Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? Amen. Never too late to ask God for help. Never too late. You make a mistake, ask God for help. God's not going to be like, well, I wanted to help you, but now, I just, now I'm just insulted. Now I'm just, you know, put off by... You know, I don't want to help you. No, that's not the heart of God. You turn to him, he'll turn to you. You look for his blessing, he'll bless you. You cry out to him, he'll meet your need. So an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha. Now we know Elisha from the books of the kings. Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That is, he was Elijah's servant, Elisha. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, I like, I like guys like this. I mentioned Micaiah, right? Remember Micaiah last week? He, he wasn't necessarily a nice guy. He was a little sarcastic. He, he wasn't afraid to speak the truth. Jehoshaphat's problem he was overly diplomatic and he just he wanted to get along with everybody. And it got him into trouble, we see now, three times, right? This is the third. 
But guys like Elisha and Elijah and Micaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they had no problem calling it out. Look what happens. Elisha, and we're in verse 13 now. We're going to read right down to 19. Elisha said to the king of Israel, that's Joram, what do we have to do with each other? Don't you love that? What do we have to do with each other? Why am I even talking to you, basically? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Those are the false prophets. (laughs) No, the the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Again, blaming God for his foolishness. It was either God or Putin, I don't know which. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. But now bring me a harpist. What? Yeah, sometimes the prophets would like to prophesy to music. It's very interesting. They would prophesy to music. I don't know if it was just background music, you know, or if they actually sang. I don't know exactly, but this is what he said. So while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, this is what the Lord Jehovah says. Make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. Remember, that was the need, right? What was the need? They were dying of thirst in the desert. God meets the need. Can I hear an amen? When you cry out to him, this is an easy thing. So he said, you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. <laughs> Did you like that? He's like, oh, you're going to have plenty to drink. Oh, and by the way, he's going he's to hand Moab over to you. When's the last time you went to God and said, God, I want it all. Every bit of good blessing you have for me, according to your will. Well, God, I don't really want to bother you. I just, you know, if you could throw me a bone, if you could just meet this one need. No, you need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I I need it all. I need everything you have for me. I don't want to miss out on one good thing you want to do in my life. Well, he will also hand Moab over to you, which is why they were out in the desert to begin with, right? You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree. And stop up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. That's what they would do to their enemies. Let's just stop there for a minute. That's pretty awesome. God was going to do a work. And he told them what that work was going to be. But they only needed to do one thing. Did you see what they needed to do? Make this valley full of ditches. God will ask you to do something sometimes. You just need to do this one thing. I just want you to do this one thing. Just do this and I'll do all the rest. Sometimes it's as simple as just praising God. Sometimes it's as simple as just being where God has called you to be. Being in his word. Being in prayer. Following through. Being obedient. To follow his will. But if you're not willing to do that, don't expect anything. Where would the water have gone if they didn't dig the ditches? Nowhere. Somebody might have said, what are you talking about digging ditches? This is ridiculous. But no, they just did it, as we'll see. So I want to compare Jehoshaphat as an excellent leader to Joram, who was a horrible leader. You see, what made Jehoshaphat a good leader wasn't that he was perfect. It's just that when he knew he didn't know what to do, he cried out to the Lord. He was an excellent leader whose faith in the Lord saved all their lives everyone's life. But it was faith because he sought the Lord when Joram's surprise attack became too difficult to follow. Notice, he sought the Lord's counsel when the resources of the people were limited. You know, you love it when a leader is willing to stand up and say, we're in trouble. We need to cry out to God to ask him to deliver us. You don't see much of that these days. But he interceded for the needs of those following him. He recognized that the Lord could solve any problems that they encountered. And he took responsibility for his own weakness and his failure. Anyone can respect a man or a woman who's willing to do those things. It's what he did, and God showed up. He trusted in the word of the Lord through Elisha the prophet. 
I love that Elisha refused to even speak the word of the Lord to Joram, king of Israel. Why should he? This was a man who was an idolater, a wicked man, a manipulator, an awful human being, wanted nothing to do with God, so God wanted nothing to do with him. He recognized there was no fellowship between them. Have you recognized that there's no fellowship between you and darkness? Then don't go out on that date. Don't take that job. Don't go to that school. You know, I see too many young people, well, you know, it's, they got a really good program. Really? They have a really good program? Yeah, they have a really good... I checked that school out. That's a party school. Well, you know, you don't have to get involved in the fraternities and the sororities. A year goes by, what do you think they're doing? They're doing the same thing that Jehoshaphat was doing. I got to say something, and I don't want to be too judgmental about it, but most colleges and universities... It would, be better that, it would be better that you go follow Joram in the desert than attend those schools. They're dens of iniquity, promoting the most awful teachings that defy God and his word. They promote lasciviousness, that is wickedness, where people run buck wild, boys and girls in the same dorms, same bathrooms, learning about all kinds of awful things that nobody should even think about, let alone practice. And you're going to send your kid there? Why? Because they've got a good program? Think about that. And the damage you'll do to your children if you allow that. I've been speaking to a number of uh, pastors over the years who were perfectly willing to send their kids to college, higher education, but said, you're not going anywhere until you spend a year at Bible college. I thought that was great. Send them to Bible college. At least give them a year of the Bible and God's word, a good Bible college. Not that Bible college is the answer, but you want to go to college? Go to Bible college. See how you do, and we'll talk. And so then they'll go, they'll get like a one or two year certificate or degree, and then they decide, well, you know, I'd like to go to a regular school. Well, check out the school. There are good schools. There are schools where all that nonsense doesn't take place. But parents are way too willing to send their kids into Sodom and Gomorrah, and then they're surprised when they don't want to go to church. Or they're living like Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, I don't mean to be mean, I don't mean to be judgmental, but open your eyes. We're in a war for the hearts and the souls of our young people. And we can't be sending them to the dens of iniquity that most of these universities are. Like I said, most, not all, most. And there are Christian colleges. I'm not saying that's the answer necessarily, but please, if you know it's the like, number one party school on the East Coast, maybe not send your kids there. Well, I like Elisha. He refused to have anything to do with this man. He knew there was no fellowship between him and darkness and the wicked. And he refused to have anything to do with this man because of his hypocrisy. This man, Elisha, faithfully served the Lord, but the king blamed the Lord for his predicament. What does that tell you? But he agreed to speak the word of the Lord to one man, that's Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he was a good man. He used that music to inspire him, and as he prophesied, he instructed them to, as we've seen, dig ditches, to contain the water that the Lord would provide. It takes faith to dig a dish, a, a ditch. It, it takes faith to do that. But God can fill the ditch you dig as you exercise faith. If you don't dig it, he can't, or he won't. Let's put it that way. Well, the Lord promised to provide for their need and to deliver them from their enemies. So all they had to do was be obedient, and fortunately they were. And the Lord fulfilled this promise to provide an abundance of water for them. Look at verse 20. It says the next morning about the time for, the offering, uh, for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. Now, how did that happen? There was no rain. We were told there was not going to be any rain. Well, listen, he provided for them, first of all, when? At the time of the morning sacrifice in Jerusalem. And what that tells me is sacrifice always precedes the Lord's provision. See, we sacrifice praise. We sacrifice glory to God. We give our our worship and our praise to God. We sacrifice, that is, we give our hearts to God, a sacrifice of praise. And are we surprised? We shouldn't be when God provides for us. Sacrifice is what opens the floodgates of God's blessings. And we have the great and awesome sacrifice of all time, Christ's death on the cross for our sins. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. But it's not to say you can't make a sacrifice of praise. Our Lord's sacrifice provides salvation for each of us. And as we make sacrifices, as we give sacrificially, as we praise sacrificially, God provides for our needs. 
That's just the way it works. As we give sacrificially, God provides for our needs. And what did they do? Well, around the time of the sacrifice, they found out something. They would have been making sacrifices. God was providing for his people. And the Lord fulfilled his promise to deliver them from their enemies. Look at verse 27, or excuse me, uh, verse 21 through 27. Now, um, we're in 2 Kings, by the way, uh, chapter 3. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against him, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. And when they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water, and to the, Mo- uh, to the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Because remember, they had the king of Eden there, and they weren't really very strong allies. So they make an assumption. It's another ambush is what it is. Now to the plunder of Moab, but when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up, surprise attack, and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered, and they stopped up all the springs, cut down every good tree. Only Kir Haraseth was left with its stones in place, but the men, armed with slings, surrounded it and attacked it as well. So they would put the stones on the field to prevent them from resettling the land because it took a lot of work to remove those stones to be able to plow the fields and plant their crops. Basically, it's a way of taking over their, their land. And that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what God said would happen. By the way, the Moabites did not consider that the Lord could provide water without seeing rain. No one saw rain, but God provided water. How did that happen? Well, heavy rain may have fallen on the eastern mountains of Edom without any sign of the storm. That can happen in the desert. They have these gullies in the desert where you'll have rain on the distant mountains and all of a sudden this gully will fill with water and it can wash you away. You, don't, you just hear water flowing. You don't actually see any rain. Heavy rain on the distant mountains can flood desert canyons miles away. When I was horseback riding in Arizona, around the Phoenix area, they told us, whatever you do, don't take the horse down into this gully because if you go down into there at any minute, it can fill with water even though you don't see any rain. That happened. That's, apparently, that's what happened. Well, the Moabites assumed that the water in the ditches was the blood of their enemies. They jumped to a conclusion I think they thought that Edom rebelled against Israel and Judah because Edom was subject to Judah and was more closely aligned with Moab. So they, 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 they jumped to a conclusion. They said, oh, maybe this happened. But the Moabites were defeated and their land was invaded and destroyed. And the king of Moab, you know what's so sad? He refused to accept defeat. I'll read it for you. It's kind of sad and pathetic, but I'll read it for you anyway. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. See, what he wants to do is he wants to get to the king of Edom and say, fight with me. Let's defeat these guys. But they failed. And then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. Hard to imagine that someone would not actually want to kill their own child, right? Well, not in our world. We don't wait till they're born. sacrificed him on the city wall. And the fury against Israel was great, and they withdrew and returned to their own land. So Israel left, because they, they, if he's willing to do that, these people are crazy. Well, after unsuccessfully attempting to defeat the army with the help of the Edomites, or to get to the Edomites, he sought the help of his God, his pagan god, Chemosh, the detestable god of the Moabites, publicly sacrificing his firstborn son in order to inspire his army. It's like a bloodlust. They would get everybody excited. Oh, I'm I'm willing to kill my own son. Die for me. You know, that kind of whack stuff. I mean, that's just crazy. And they succeeded in repelling the armies of Israel, and probably because the armies of Israel, they were idolaters as well, and they may have withdrawn in fear of this false god. But this is what they did. They sacrificed their children to the god Chemosh or Molech, which was another one of these gods. Let's go back to the text we started in and we'll close. That's really sad and pathetic, but what had Jehoshaphat gotten himself into? (laughs) 
bad situation because he was weak in that area. But we then learn in verse 1 of chapter 21, we're just going to look at the three verses here and we'll close it out. Back to our text. Then Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, succeeded him as king. Not Joram, Jehoram. Joram's brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Shephatiah. And all these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father had given them many gifts of silver and gold and articles of value, as well as fortified cities in Judah, but he had given the kingdom to Jehoram because he was his firstborn son. And we'll pick it up there next week. Jehoshaphat finally died, but he left the kingdom of Judah in an alliance with the kingdom of Israel. And we're going to see the fruit of that in next week's study and going forward. As we said, he reigned as king for 25 years, and then he rested with his fathers in Sheol, waiting for the coming judgment. And his eldest son, Jehoram, succeeded his father as king of Judah. And then we are told that Jehoram's six, or, yeah, Jehoram's six brothers received the large inheritance as well. That is to say, they were given titles. In England, you have kings, but you also have dukes, right? You have people that have high titles. They were given very high titles. And we'll see next week, you can read ahead if you like, what Jehoram did to them to maintain and control his own power. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that we have weaknesses. We recognize that we fail. We recognize that sometimes we refuse to humble ourselves and to cry out to you when, in fact, that's exactly what we need to do. I pray that in our weakness we would cry out to you, that you would show us our weaknesses, that we would make ourselves accountable, and that if our weakness is aligning ourselves or allying ourselves with the ungodly, that you would have convicted us so severely tonight that we would learn from the example of Jehoshaphat and never, ever again allow ourselves to be yoked to an unbeliever or an ungodly person in any way, shape, or form. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.